little over two weeks ago, the SBC, that's the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC's report on pastoral sexual abuse came out and had quite an impact on us. It feels, to be honest, much more than two weeks ago. It feels as many things during COVID, but anything difficult, it feels like a month or more. My devotions during that time, during the last couple weeks, have been a great comfort to me. In fact, the, the verse that we started it with as our call to worship was from our devotions, and the passage I'll be preaching out of today is from our devotions. But that first weekend, two weeks ago, it was a Sunday, as I was looking through Twitter, looking for the responses of some people that I anticipated might have a response, I bumped into a tweet that didn't explain much, and I wasn't sure if it had to do with SBC, and it did and it didn't, or if it had to do with other things. But it just said, what do you call it when a 30, I think it was four, a 34-year-old is romantically involved with a 16-year-old? And it wasn't really looking for an answer. But my first thought was a literary one. Well, that's the plot of Emma. I love Jane Austen as an author, but if you didn't know, the movies and the story of Emma is about a 34-year-old that when he was 17 first told this beautiful baby girl named Emma. And a lot of that has to do with the times in the age that it was written during where that might have been okay. It is certainly not okay in our age. But the story of Emma is about a 34-year-old and a 17-year-old. Then my second thought, because... June being Pride Month, Pride was coming up and we were already hearing his name as happens every single year around this time, was of Harvey Milk. Well, if you didn't know the story of Harvey Milk from San Francisco, when he was 34, 34 years old, was involved with a 16-year-old boy. That somehow seems to get a pass very often, just as Emma does. But I also immediately knew that this was something else. It wasn't referencing literature, and it wasn't referencing Pride Month. It either had to do with the SBC report or something else had happened. So I started searching, and I found the video that came out of Indiana, church in Indiana. And I wasn't going to use any names, but they, the couple involved has actually released their names. But the church in Indiana, the pastor had gotten up at the end of the service, and he was admitting to an affair that lasted, according to him, 20 years. There's an eight-minute video, and then there's a longer 15-minute video. I finally hunted both of those down. And in the longer one, it's in both, but in the longer one, it gives more context. Some of it good, as you see when they walk out, that people, despite some allegations that the church did nothing for the couple that stood up, that some people were talking to them and you could hear the crowd a little bit better and their challenges. But Bobby Gephardt and her husband Nate stood up, walked to the pulpit, and Nate said, if you love us, let us speak. And then Bobby challenged back and said, it wasn't 20 years, it's 27, and I was 16. And it shakes you, and it shakes me as a youth pastor and as somebody that leads our child abuse prevention program to watch that video. It's tough. You can hear it in my voice now. But even tougher is what comes next inevitably on Twitter and social media and on our very divided culture. 
The substantiated allegations of both these things, SBC in this moment in a particular church, are heartbreaking. The cover-ups and minimalizing and the dismissiveness and antagonism towards the victims is infuriating. And the newest turn as of Thursday, and it's still going, with the SBC on Twitter is the claim of it's only 700 victims in the report and a continued diminishing of the abuse. To be clear, I'm not just talking about accusations and reported allegations, but we're talking about admissions and substantiated allegations. These are things admitted to and things that have been factualized or have been looked into. The facts have been made clear, yet the victims have continued to suffer because of wrong and sinful responses. Tying this intro and our prayer of confession together. It's easier to condemn war atrocities in Ukraine by Russian soldiers than to talk about church atrocities by American pastors. But we need to embrace light in the midst of darkness, whether it's in European ruins or evangelical sanctuaries. And Ephesians 5 actually talks about this a little bit. Maybe quite a bit, at least if you think I'm understanding it correctly. I don't mean that Paul is talking particularly the way that we would about abuse and abuse in church, but I think there's some indications that it's not too far off base to take it there, and it's certainly not off base to apply this passage to it. Ephesians 5 Starting at verse 1, I'm going to read much more than I can cover today. And this is one of those moments in our youth where we talk about that we need to be ready for the essays and the books and not just the tweets. But even a 30-minute sermon like today is more of a tweet than an essay. There's much more to the conversation. And there's much more to this passage than I'll get to. So if you think I missed things, the answer is yes, I did. Not so much missed as had to leave them on my my desk and my work table. But Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, 
but is wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 1 starts with, therefore, I've got to tell you, you need to go back and read Ephesians 4, really Ephesians 1 through 4. Therefore, always points us backwards, and we're supposed to take a look at it. But the next thing it says, be imitators of God. This is Christ-likeness. We talk about this all the time in the church. We need to act like Christ. It's not shocking. It is difficult. And yet we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this. Today, I believe, is Pentecost when we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are empowered to live holy. And though we don't do this perfectly, that is the standard and the, and the goal. To be Christ-like, to be imitators of God. But notice this very important next phrase, beloved children. This is who Paul is talking to. He needs to confront them about activity that should not exist because of Christ-likeness. But he needs to tell them and remind them, you are, no matter how you are behaving, beloved children. Their salvation is secure and not in question if they have put their faith in Christ, even if their actions are out of line with Christ. Even though some questionable behavior is about to be challenged. And by the way, Whatever image you have of the early church, it is most likely wrong or incomplete. We don't think very well in terms of accuracy of the early church. We throw on those rose-colored glasses and we think that they were perfect. But they struggled with racism, division, drunkenness, slavery, and as we'll get to today, sexual sin, among other things. Nevertheless, those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ We're positionally beloved children, and we still are, no matter their or our struggles and sins. The worst wrong that you can do, if you are in Christ, cannot remove you from being his beloved child. And that is important. Verse 2 then tells us to walk in love. And walk in love as Christ loved us, Christ-likeness, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But then he's going to tell them how to walk in love in a very particular way as he addresses some sexual sin that they are having to deal with or at least need to be reminded of the standard in Scripture. Verse 3, the first part. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. It looks like a short list of three things. It, after all, has three different words or phrases in there. Sexual immorality, impurity, and then the third one being covetousness. But it is possible and maybe even more likely that all three Paul has in mind here are sexual sin including a greediness for sexual sin that he needed to address 
in the Ephesian church. And the first one, sexual immorality, it's anything and everything outside the clear and consistent biblical boundaries. These are the boundaries that celebrate celibate singlehood and endorse monogamous fidelity between a husband and a wife. And scripture is consistent throughout about that. Anything less than that is sin. Anything outside of that is sin. And Paul is calling it out. And the Greek word there is porneia. I don't use Greek words that often when I teach or preach. It pops up from time to time. But this one I almost always use, especially with students when we are teaching through stuff. It's the word porneia. And while Paul is talking about sexual activity, sin along those lines, you can hear our word for pornography in there. It sounds familiar to us. That's why I use it. So while Paul is talking about activity, it is definitely interesting that that word makes us think of other things more in line with what Jesus says when he talks about lust and adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. Men, it's not okay. Whether it's inappropriate sexual activity or inappropriate sexual thoughts and engagement online. It's not okay. And women, it's a race you never should have entered but somehow have quickly tried to catch up to and are catching up to men. We need to make no mistake in our culture, pornography is not a part of healthy sexuality nor is it compatible with holiness. We have to stop excusing it. We are forgiven of it, grace upon grace upon grace. But it is not acceptable behavior, whether it is activity or, as Jesus points out, mental activity. The second word, impurity, it's unholiness. Again, though, it is probably and most likely having to do, in Paul's mind, with sexual sin Sexual immorality and impurity are almost always tagged together in a list when they are mentioned in a list often in this context. And it reminds us that sexual sin and holiness are not bedfellows, and that pun is entirely intended. They don't go together. The last one, though, greediness, that one seems kind of off to us, especially when it's paired to idolatry, but the context seems to set this in relation And again, this is often included with sexual immorality when it's mentioned in the list. And it's in relation then to the sexual appetite outside of that standard for biblical marriage. So instead of Paul listing three different things, what he seems to be doing is emphasizing three times that in regards to Christ-likeness, sexual purity and fidelity matters. Then in verse 4, says, even in regards to our words, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul hasn't changed the subject to a different list or set of things on his list. It's the same concept. Like our culture, apparently Ephesus struggled with risque joking and innuendo, and Paul is calling them out on that. That is not how God would have us act. It is not Christ-likeness, or holiness. Inappropriate sexual speech and joking are also out of line with those things. Rather, our words are supposed to be full of thanksgiving. 
And maybe he even means a particular kind of thanksgiving, either thanksgiving and satisfaction with our spouse or thanksgiving and satisfaction with being single and not like our world being greedy or covetous in that respect. Then verse 5 and 6, and Paul gets pretty strong here. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You need to keep in mind, though, this is really important. He's talking about holiness. It sounds like he's talking about salvation, and he is in a way, but there's an underlying set of verses that you must remember as you go through all of Ephesians, and it's Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beloved children, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, makes it clear, if you are saved, no matter your misbehavior, you are not at risk of being booted out of heaven. That's not in play. You are secure in the hands of your Savior. But if you are just attending church, thinking that you are saved, bad behavior in this regard, as with many other kinds of sin, should indicate to you that you don't actually know Christ. And in particular, he's talking about some people that are misleading them into sexual sin or thinking that it does not matter because of grace. So I think Paul would have us think back to we are saved by grace, not how we act and not our own holiness, but we were made for holiness. We've been saved to holiness, not because we ourselves are inherently holy. There's a standard of Christian behavior, but salvation comes from Christ's work and not our own actions. So while Paul comes on strong here, keep it in that context. And I want to emphasize now, for those uncomfortable with what I've said or where I go with the, the rest of this sermon, because you feel like Paul or I are heaping on guilt, grace to you. When we come to communion, enjoy grace. Paul is laying out the standard of holiness and condemning the world's sexual ethic and that it's creeping into the church in Ephesus. And not merely Ephesus, by the way. Paul talked about this often. In most of his letters, it was subject of at least a verse, if not a whole section. We are to strive for this, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are not to fear our salvation. We are secure in Christ as beloved children. Before we get to seven, you might have noticed that I skipped the last half of three. So I need to go back to that. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Not even named, not even mentioned, not even hinted at. NIV has hint, NASB has mentioned, ironically, the HCSB, that's the Holman Christian Standard Bible, that's from Lifeway, and Lifeway is the Southern Baptist Church. 
it says it very well. It says, not even be heard of among you. Now, it's very important that we don't misunderstand this. It isn't that we can't talk about sexual sin, but that because of holiness, we ought to be above the fray of sexual sin that our world pursues. But these Christians were caught up in the pursuit, or at least, as I mentioned before, had to be reminded not to be. And I remind you, this is Ephesus. It's not Corinth. Corinth was awful. Ephesus is pretty good. And yet it appears to have been struggling in this matter or at least be reminded, needed to be reminded of the holy standard. They were in danger, if nothing else, of coveting the sinful sexual appetite of Roman culture, which is bad. But does that sound familiar to anyone? I hate to admit it, but this is us. I don't mean Grace Baptist particularly, hopefully not, although statistically it might be. But this is us, the American church. We are Corinth. If you didn't know which church in the Bible to compare us to, the American church is Corinth. We are not Ephesus. I wish that we are Ephesus. And there's times we drift to Ephesus and we drift to Galatia but we live amidst Corinth. So this is us. But even Ephesus, this was them. And I know thinking about that might be a little bit like finding out that your grandparents were quite risque in their younger days. But this is the truth of Scripture. The Christians then struggled just like we do. They were not perfect people. Paul isn't just talking about consensual sexual sin either, I don't believe. He might be alluding to sexual abuses too. He's certainly mentioning sexual greediness, and he is exposing sexual sin in this passage. Wronging each other and God avenging comes up in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. I'm going to read both of these together, the longer part of Ephesians 5, and then move over to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. Picking up at verse 7 in Ephesians 5. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's our goal. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul then, talking to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, Finally then, brothers and sisters, we request and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, That you excel even more, for you know the instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, that's their body, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one violate the rights and take advantage of his brother or sister in the matter, in, in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all, all these things. Just as we also told you previously and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in sanctification. You look at the words that are there, partnering in ministry, that seems to apply with some leaders or at least some people that had some sway over their theology and their practice. Maybe not the leaders, but people that were trying to be leaders and usurp power within the church. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, it talks about wronging a brother and sister, and God avenging. I don't think God needs to avenge consensual sexual sin. But he does abuse. Paul at least seems to open the door to that, if not tear it off its hinges. To be clear, in the SBC report, sin is the issue, not the exposure of sin. Even though it's not our denomination, if you didn't know, we're not Southern Baptists. Baptists is on the, on the building, but there's so many breeds of Baptists, you probably can't keep them straight. Even our own, it's been Swedish, and then Baptist General Conference, and then it's converged now. People don't always know what Baptist means. But the SBC report is just a reflection of the church as a whole, at least the church in America. But again, it's not the exposure of sin that's the issue. We need to embrace light amidst the darkness, no matter how hard, and not try to hide or to push things into the shadows. It says, do not become partners with them. They are arguing, arguably leadership. That seems to be perhaps, at least to me, the implication of verse 6 and 7. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Clearly, sexual sin is in play. This is what Paul's been talking about. Maybe not only at this point he, he could have moved on to other things, but he hasn't moved away from it. And it's arguably sexual abuse, too. And then it says, expose. We don't hide. We don't cover up. We don't bury. We don't trivialize. We don't deny. We don't victim shame. We expose. Now, before you're worried about your, your, in our terms, from our perspective, your smallest sexual sins being brought before the church and exposed to everyone, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking, I think, in particular about leaders that are wronging the church and misleading them. Again, maybe not official leaders, but people that had gained some sway over the church in Ephesus. He's talking about what to do with un unrepentant sin and persistent sin or sin that is so egregious that it would escalate up into how you need to deal with it. We expose it. The couple that stood up in the church two weeks ago was not wrong for exposing that. They actually were right. When it says shameful to even speak of things they do in secret, again, that doesn't mean that we don't speak of it means it's shameful that we have to. We ought to be above this, and yet we know in our sinful hearts that we are not. Another set of verses that have been tossed around a little bit 
in trying to keep it, well, I should say another verse, in trying to keep it quiet. You might hear when a leader does wrong and it's a leader we love and we're worried about the gospel and we are worried about the impact and people walking away because of it. First Timothy 5, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Yes, that's true. But so is the next verse. So if you hear somebody say that, just say, well, read verse 20 now. As for those who persist in sin, leaders, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they, the rest may stand in fear. It doesn't mean we sweep it under the rug. In fact, the opposite, Paul again says, we expose persistent, unrepentant, and egregious sin, including sexual sin. I even struggled as late as last night. Am I really going to preach this? And the answer is yes, we need to. It's hard and it hurts, but we need to. But the other answer I have is this. Before you accept somebody's maybe right-hearted but very wrong response of, well, well, what about the gospel? How can we talk about our sin if it gets in the way of the gospel in the world? They won't want to come to church. Well, one, they should be drawn to church because of Christ and grace. But two, it reminded me, and I saw something on Twitter, of a moment that my wife and my dad had as he was preaching. He made a comment in Ephesians 6, the next chapter after this one, that nobody had ever come to Christ off of these set of verses. And he didn't know that my wife had. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. So my wife talked to my dad and said, Jamie, that... My dad's name is Jamie. That's the one that led me to Christ because I realized God's full character. That he wasn't just looking at children saying obey, but he was looking at parents telling us to parent. Telling us not to exasperate. If we don't talk about these things, think of the impact on the victims and holding them from the gospel. We have to talk about hard things in church when there are hard things to talk about. And two weeks ago, there were quite a few set of hard things dropped in our lap. I don't even know how to finish this off, so I'm going to do my best. I've been working on it all week. Every word I came up with felt wrong. So whatever word I put here seems not quite right to you. I'm open to suggestions. But church should be the best or safest or welcomest place to expose sexual sin and even sexual abuse and deal with it in a God-honoring way. We can't hide from it. No matter how much it is a difficult thing to talk about. Speaking to the victims. Get some counseling help. Four kinds you can get, and maybe you need all four, or three of the four. And it's very important you understand that good is a qualifier for all of them. They must be good. Go get good Christian counseling. Go get good pastoral counseling. Go get good biblical counseling. Go get good good psychological counseling. Go see a good Christian psychologist. If you need to, a good Christian psychiatrist. Mental health 
is a valuable and important thing. And if you are a victim, you need someone to come alongside you and help you through this. We are not meant to walk through this alone. But make sure it's good and make sure it's Christian, if at all possible. And around here, I can tell you it is. Go find good Christian counseling in any of those four categories. You are the victim. If you are the victim, you are the victim. I don't, I don't add if there to question anybody. But when you are the victim, Scripture calls that out. It doesn't shame you. It doesn't tell you to keep quiet lest some public figure would be exposed. It goes the other direction and it says, if it applies, expose the sin, get comfort from Christ, go to the community of believers and get help and good Christian counseling falls into the community of the believers. Get help. You are not alone. You do not have to stand alone. And we may struggle to understand or to walk through it, but your family will walk through you through it with you. We're here to help. Also, report abuse. God, his word, and holiness are never against justice, and they don't require you to suffer without recourse. Yes, grace and forgiveness. And yes, a God of justice. Those are not fighting with each other. Our great God of grace is the same God who brings justice to a world that is broken by sin. And so what needs to be reported, unshockingly, needs to be reported. Within the walls of this church, I mentioned that I head up our CAP program, Child Abuse Prevention Program. We encourage you as a church family, be alert and vigilant. I wish that we could promise nothing will ever happen here. I can't. But I can promise that we will do everything we can to make it the safest place possible. We won't live fearful, but we will live wise. So if you're familiar with that, that isn't a long, massive packet that we gave to you to bore you. It's a long, massive packet that, yes, is sometimes slow, meticulous, and boring that we gave to you to protect our kids. Read it and be familiar with it. And when we make an update, pay attention to it and respond to it. The window's on every door in this building. As long as you can do this without being distracting. So don't, you know, do this and tap on the window. (laughs) But look into them. That's why they're there. It's for accountability. Our goal is to be as accountable and vigilant as possible. When we ask you to go through fingerprinting, it isn't because we want to invade your privacy. It's because we want to protect our children here at Grace. Along those lines, too, this isn't spelled out in our CAP policy, but I say it to our youth group all the time, in particular every trip that we go to or any time we hop on a bus, especially if it's a bus driver that we haven't taken through CAP because they're hired out. You need to obey your leaders unless it's illegal, immoral, or so illogical it makes you uncomfortable. In which case, talk to somebody. If if your bus driver tells you to sit down, that is not illegal. Sit down and put your seatbelt on now. But if they ask you to do something that is harmful, 
then you need to get our attention. Paul clearly, whether he's talking about abuse or not, even though I think he is, at least in part, he lays out, and this is important for us to remember, turning a corner from abuse now, the very high sexual ethic of holiness. It is countercultural. This is not how our world lives, and it is not how our world thinks. In 1 Corinthians, Paul even says, you can't really expect them to. 1 Corinthians 5, I can take you there if you're confused as to which one I'm talking about, but we're not going to go down that road today. But Paul says, of course I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about in the church. The very high sexual ethic of holiness, it's purity. And it's purity not in a predatory or a patriarchal way, but it's nonetheless purity. Tragically, if you go look up that video, that story, apparently the victim was wearing a purity ring that she had gotten from the pastor. That's what I mean by predatory and patriarchal. But the issue is not purity. Paul holds that bar, that bar high. Men, we need to be faithful and holy, and we need to quit blaming women when it's our sin that's the issue. We can't blame them if it's our lust or our activity that is the problem. Nobody asks to be a victim no matter what they're doing. Our sin is our sin. And women, you need to be faithful and holy, but you also need to quit rolling your eyes at men whenever it is your sin. That's the issue. Because there are also some of those moments women are called to purity and holiness too. And everyone, grace upon grace upon grace. If you're a victim in the room, God redeems and he restores and he renews. For sinners, including sinners in regards to sexual sin, God redeems. Even when scripture rebukes us, God redeems. And even for abusers, but always in biblical and not ignoring ways, God can redeem even you even when he does not remove the social or legal ramifications of your actions. That sometimes is hard for us to grasp with, that the God of justice is still a God of grace. Grace to us, but maybe also grace to the abuser. Not overlooking grace, that's not grace. But grace nonetheless. And all of us, we need to embrace light in the midst of darkness even when it exposes our own sinful hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I ask for comfort. This is a tough sermon to preach, and I know it's a tough sermon to hear. Comfort us. But Lord, if we need to be uncomfortable to deal with this better than our world does, so be it. Bring your grace to that moment, but bring your truth and expose the light that shows us where we need to be repentant. So while we ask for comfort, keep us vigilant. Watch over any who would be a victim here and keep us from behavior that would wrong and victimize others. Lord, we need your grace. Grace for the moment when we get a report that shakes our world, 
even if we know what's coming, like the SBC report. Grace for churches that are struggling with being on that list and how to respond. But Lord, keep them vigilant. Call them to repentance or they have failed. Grace as we interact with each other, Lord, and grace as we come to communion. That we would feast and celebrate even on a tough subject day. We praise your name. Amen.